There we go. All right, we're going to continue our trek into Exodus today. Exodus 3 and 4 are kind of dense with things. Got some strange stuff in 3 and 4, and they've got some stuff that people have been trying to figure out for thousands of years in 3 and 4 too. And so we're going to do our best to look at some of that today, and we'll go through 3 and we'll get into 4 a little bit. Um, as you can see by this wonderful Augusta Vidore wood carving, it is the burning bush day. So we're going to deal with the burning bush and what was going on with the burning bush, and we're specifically going to spend a lot of time on the name of God. Um, I like this because sometimes when you're a kid and you think about the burning bush, you just think about this talking burning bush, and you don't think about the fact that there's a figure in the bush too. And when you think about the fact that there's a figure in the bush, which we'll talk about, it makes you think of like the figure in the furnace. It makes you think of other things where you see this figure. And uh, just something to keep in mind that it's not just like this vibrant bush talking, which is kind of what it feels like in Sunday school. But. So I want to summarize what we talked about last week. And in order to summarize what we talked about last week, I'm just going to read how Stephen summarized it in the book of Acts. So let's just read it. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he, when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. That gives us a little more clarity on Moses' childhood and growing up as a young man. When he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. All right. So going forward, we left Moses. He was pretty cool down at the well. He saved like seven women, seven daughters, and was the hero and was brought home and ended up marrying one of those daughters. Her name was Zipporah. And uh, that's what we get. That's where we were last week. So we'll go forward from here. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of God appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. We're looking at that angel of the Lord thing again. We'll talk about that. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why, the bush is not burned. So here we go. Angel of Yahweh, he's back. Uh, the same word appeared in earlier places. We talked about this as we went through Genesis. 
Remember that I, quote, I put in quotation, angel of the Lord, because it might not have necessarily been what we typically think of as an angel. We don't know. It merely means messenger of Yahweh. But yet at the same time, this messenger of Yahweh speaks as if he is Yahweh. Um, so we talked about that many times before. It's, it's Yahweh, but it's not exactly Yahweh. Um, we have our ideas on that. And this is the same angel that appeared to Abram and his crew, came and had lunch with Abram when the two other angels went down to Sodom, appeared to Abram multiple times in the visions and in real life, Uh, appears to Hagar when she's out in the desert and uh, Ishmael's about to die. Um, He appears and takes care of them. Uh, He also appears to Isaac and appears to Jacob, and we really haven't seen uh, the angel of Yahweh since, since Jacob. And so as we go through the Torah, you're going to see this figure show up often and interchangeably with the following names. And we'll talk about these names as they come up in Exodus. The name, the presence, the word. And when these are referenced, uh, these are tangible. This is a tangible being in our, pers- in our realm. We could say it's a person because there needs to be a personhood to it. But it's not, it's not human. But it's still a tangible person. So going back to Exodus 3, number 4. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. This is what we always say so far in the Old Testament as we go through when God calls to you, just say, here I am. That's like the stock thing that you say all the way through the Old Testament. Just say, here I am. Don't try to start anything. Just say, here I am, God. And then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. Okay, this just lands more, lands more credence to the fact that, do we worship angels? No. So this angel of Yahweh is somehow Yahweh. Okay, because we have to take our sandals off because it is now holy ground. In the world of cosmic geography, right now, Yahweh's presence is right there, and it is him. And so we take our sandals off. So it just goes back more when we talked about the angel of the Lord. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Um, Let's start talking about the angel of Yahweh a little bit more here again. When you are reading your Bibles and you come across the Lord in small caps, but in, you know, it's capitalized, but it's shrunk in letters. It means the name of God, which we say Yahweh. This name has already appeared before throughout Genesis. Um, You can go back when you read in Genesis, you can see where it's capital L-O-R-D and it's small. That's his name. Some people have a hard time saying his name. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, But what we need to see from this whole experience here with Moses is because he is there, it is now holy ground. It has become sacred space. Uh, You don't behold angels like that. You don't worship angels like that. Um, So something more is going on there. And even says Yahweh is talking to him, but yet it refers to him as angel of Yahweh. Um, take off your sandals. Uh, we'll see that again another time when this, this figure shows up to Joshua later, when Joshua is about to go in and he sees the captain of the host of the Lord's army, and uh, who is the same figure, evidently, and says the same thing, Joshua, take your sandals off. And... Uh, how much does, another question we just need to think about is, how much does Moses know about his forefathers? We don't really know. The Bible doesn't really tell us how much he knows. 
everything that went on. We don't know if he's fully aware of everything that went on with Abraham and the fathers. It could be that he was taught by people that he was around in Egypt. We just don't know. We do know, according to Stephen, that he was taught in all the ways of Egypt. Um, but we don't know what his connection to his people are. And uh, just kind of something to keep in mind as he talks to God. Sometimes I don't know, like Moses, when he's talking to God here, he's going to try to get out of things. And I don't know if Moses is just trying to act stupid with some of the things that he says in order to get out of it, or whether he just doesn't know certain things. Um, and then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to go to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. I want to point out again the repetition in, in language here. God has come down. We see that before. We see that a few times in Genesis, where it says, and then God came down. Uh, it's, it, it brings us kind of back to the Tower of Babel. Let us go down. It is, it is God. We have hit a critical point where God is now stepping into our reality in the physical form. We also get the images of the cries going up to God again. This is, this is multiple time, too, this idea that the petitions are reaching God. Uh, we keep this whole idea of petitions reaching God all the way through our Bible. And uh, we also see, again, oppression has moved Yahweh to take action. So when the oppression is bad, when the treatment of people treating each other, when it gets that bad, it moves Yahweh. That tells us something right there about Yahweh's heart. Um, there's a point where it's just like, okay, no more hands off, whatever, I'm gonna, we're going to do that. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Uh, so here's where we get the beginning of the word plays with the, with the name of God as we go forward talking. Moses replies, who am I? Yahweh replies, I will be. And this is going to kind of get into when we look at his name. And the whole idea is that we're going to bring the people back to this mountain to worship. It was an invitation to have his whole family back in his presence at the mountain. Does it go well when they get back to the mountain? No. No. Here is God expressing his heart to have his people back worshiping with him. And when you look at this, it just makes you very disappointed with the Hebrews, but more just like sad for God because it was his heart that they all come back and have this time with him. Exodus 3, And Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God has also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So you have a first person 
use of his name. When he just, when he goes, so first of all, you have third person. God said to Moses, my name, I am who I am. That's the name. Then you get down there. God also said to Moses, say this, I am has sent me. So that's the personal name with the I am. That makes sense. We'll talk a little bit about that. My picture did not come through. That's not cool. So you'll see three lines up there. And it has, they had pictures of the name of God uh, as it was written through all of time. And the first one in, is in the Phoenician alphabet, which is where you first see some of the dimensions of Yahweh. The next one is Paleo-Hebrew. It's not on here. And the next one is Modern Hebrew, which is quite different than Paleo-Hebrew. Quite different. So let's talk about the meaning of the name. Uh, three main suggestions have been put forth by scholars to pinpoint the meaning of God's name and its proper translation. I went into deep on this and tried to find people that could summarize this up okay. I think that we don't really know exactly what the name means. There's going to be some mystery to that. There's things about all three of these that like scholarly consensus has that I like. There's things about all three of them I like. Uh, one option stresses the presence of Yahweh, meaning that it translates, I am here with you and I will be with you. Um, in verse 12, that's clearly part of the context. Others champion the idea that it is, I am he who causes to be all that is. Arguing for a hyphel, a causative vocalization of the verbal name phrase, meaning they're taking his name from a verb, which we also see. We see that in other places. I think I kind of, I think I find myself more on number two. And then number three is other scholars emphasize a more straightforward translation of the verbal phrase as it stands and as it's vocalized in the Masoretic text. I will be who I will be. Any of these are legitimate. We're not going to split hairs on this for what the name means, what it translates. The reason the meaning is important is, as we've seen so far in the Bible, names are important. The meaning of names tell you a little bit about that person. That's the idea. That's why it was when you named someone, there was, there was like a prophetic element to when you named someone. Um, and that's, that's how they were to have seen that. So footnote, got that from the Exodus Evangelical Exegetical Commentary by Eugene E. Carpenter. Uh, so let's talk about some of the modern hang-ups on the name, uh, who doesn't use it and why. Um, so just this is kind of a summary. We have modern disagreements on using the name. Uh, pe- different people have different convictions on this. Some only use certain versions. Uh, some will see that we even have people that just make up substitutes. Um, throughout history, some have used Adonai. People have brought in Jehovah. Some people like saying Elohim. We talked about how Elohim is problematic at times, though, because you need to state that it's Elohim of the Elohim. Otherwise, you could be talking about other spiritual beings, but using it as a name, some people still do that. Um, a lot of modern Jews don't, don't say the name. They actually say Hebrew for the name, which is Hashem. And uh, I've met people that say Hashem, so when, they, when they're reading it in their Bible, um, they say Hashem instead of saying Yahweh. Um, some people like to say that we, we really shouldn't say it because we can't say it correctly because we don't know about the vowel placement for sure. Remembering that Hebrew didn't have vowels. Ancient Hebrew had no vowels. Um, and so there's lots of different opinions on this. So I did some research, spent a lot of time on it. I've met, well, it's something that I've thought about for years now. Um, so I just got some commentaries 
to go through and some different both Hebrew and Christian background commentaries to look at it. So I'm just going to read through these. Um, these are good summary type things that I found without making you sit through a bunch of stuff. In the course of the, simple, in the, course of the second simple period, the Tetragrammaton, which is the name that they say for the four letters, it came to be regarded as charged with metaphysical potency and therefore ceased to be pronounced. So an example of this with second temple text, in second temple text, we start talking more about demons. And so like that has actually carried through into like Catholic exorcisms where you have to ask the demon, you have to figure out the name to have power over the demon. Does that make sense? Have you ever seen that in things or... Or once I know your name, we do that in our folklore, like Rumpelstiltskin, right? Once you know the name, you then have power over that. So they were saying, because that's how we feel about names and naming and having power over things, we shouldn't say the name because we can't have power over the name. Does that make sense? So that's where part of that came with the Second Temple, um, the edicts. Um, Often the vowels of Adonai... Well, it was replaced first with Adonai, which is Lord, rendered into Greek Kyrios. We've heard the word Kyrios before. A lot of people will title their programs that. Often the vowels of Adonai would later accompany the Tetragrammaton in written text. That's where we get Jehovah from. If you've ever wondered where they get Jehovah from, they take the four letters, and then they put in the vowels from Adonai to make up a new word. So Jehovah is simply just a made-up word of trying to combine two things it's weird. Uh, this gave rise to the mistaken form Jehovah. The original pronunciation was eventually lost, and uh, modern attempts at figuring out the Jehovah thing are conjectural. Uh, talking specifically about Jehovah, because this is one we hear a lot when I was growing up. A lot of people still like to say Jehovah. The form Jehovah results from reading the consonants of the Tetragrammaton with the vowels of the surrogate word Adonai, the dissemination of this form is usually traced back to Petrus, Galatinus, almost makes me want to say Gelatinus, confessor to Pope Leo X, who in 1518 transliterated the four Hebrew letters with the Latin letters J-H-V-H, together with the vowels of Adonai producing the artificial form Jehovah. So if you're wondering, though there's some people that say Jehovah might have been used as early as 1100, the Jehovah thing is actually a Catholic thing that they did to try to come up with a name. While the hybrid form, Jehovah, has been met with much resistance uh, and is universally regarded as an ungrammatical aberration, it nonetheless passed from Latin into English and then other European translations and has been hallowed by usage in hymns and the ASV. It is only used a few times in the KGV and not at all in the RSV. Um, so there you go. There's the history of Jehovah. You ever wondered where the Jehovah word came from? And uh, there you go. Uh, one scholar I did really like, her name is Kristen Detroyer. And just a little brief thing about her. Her whole life has been specifically uh, studying pretty much this. Uh, this section of Exodus and some different things throughout Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy, but like specifically going back into all the different texts and looking at all the different versions of texts, like a true nerd, like going into different volumes that they found from different eras to figure out the continuity between all the translation stuff. She's an Old Testament scholar, theologian, writer, and an honorary professor who has taught at different universities 
lots of universities. She's the author of many scholarly books and articles and editor of several academic series and the professor and researcher of the Hebrew Bible, Septuagint, Judaism, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, her big push also was that, according to her, the Masoretic text reflects later redactional reworkings of shorter Hebrew source text. Let me break that down. The Masoretic text is the text that we drew of to make our Bible at one point because that's what the rabbis were continuously passing down. So it was a rabbi Hebrew thing. Um, so as time went on, it gets changed little by little. There are bits and parts that are changed. It doesn't get changed a whole lot. It's still like 98% the same as what we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But there are things that do get changed. One of the things that, that will get changed, and we'll talk about this a little bit, is the usage of the name of God, whether we should do it or not. Uh, and this is from her. She did a good essay that summarizes a lot. Most of the printed Hebrew Bibles are based on Codex Leningrad, or Leningrad Aces, before you do the Latin, because it's all sciencey. A codex dated to 1008 or 1009, located at the Library of St. Petersburg in Russia. So it's over a thousand years old. You can go physically see this codex that most of the printed Hebrew Bibles are made of still. Um, it's the oldest complete Hebrew Bible that they have. We have lots of older uh, fragments even going to the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are 2,000-something years old, and really early copies of the Septuagint, which we have fragments of, too. The usual form of the name of God, however, in the Codex Leningradus is... That didn't copy over either. In other words, there is an, o, there is an olam, or an O sound, missing in the printed f- form of the Tetragrammaton. Why that matters is because we're still kind of on this Jehovah kick, there's no O sound in the Tetragrammaton. We know this, like going all the way back. But people just latch on to that. Indeed, like many Jewish readers of the Bible today do, God is referred to in the margins of the Masoretic Bible as Hashema, the Jewish Arabic, Aramaic word, sorry, for the name. The oldest complete copy of the Hebrew Bible does hence not render the Tetragrammaton with the Lord, or what we would say is Adonai, but with the name. Similarly, Codex Alipo, which is a little bit older but is in fragments, and the editors of the Rabbinic Bible have the name instead of uh, Adonai. Uh, Mike Heiser throws in a little thing here. That's where they take the vowels from, too. I acknowledge that there are a couple of exceptions to this rule, namely a couple of places where Codex L indeed has Adonai as a query. A query is a margin note. So they actually would read their Bible, and if something was in the margin, you had to read something out of the margin in order to read something that was in the Bible correctly. Does that make sense? It's kind of, we have stuff in the, we have stuff in our margins too. Um, Was the name pronounced or not? So this is what we're getting to. Was the name pronounced or not? There is no explanation as to why the Tetragrammaton was no longer pronounced. Moreover, all hypothesis regarding the origins of those margin phenomenon are speculative, all the hypotheses regarding the origins of them, purely speculative. So we just don't know. In the Jewish tradition, there are plenty of statements regarding the non-pronunciation of the name of God. In the Mishnah Tractart Sanhedrin, no, there's that Sanhedrin name, so that kind of tells you where that's coming from. For instance, it is clearly stated that the name of God cannot be pronounced. Only the high priest, more specifically on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, can utter the name of God, and all the other Jews are not supposed to pronounce the name of God. What's a Mishnah? 
You guys know what a Mishnah is? What's a Mishnah, Carol? It's a commentary, yeah. So it's not like it's not a Bible. It's not. So this idea that's coming forth, we're getting it in rabbinical teachings. Um, so that's just something to keep in mind. From a difference between the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible, which we talked about is what the rabbis were using, and the Greek Septuagint translation, which they were using at Jesus' time for the Greek-speaking Jews, um, Martin Roselle deduces that only by the time of the Greek translation of the book of Leviticus, the Tetragrammaton was no longer pronounced. According to most scholars, this was somewhere at the end of the 3rd century BCE, Second Temple Judaism, so that goes back to that whole thing about using the word as a word of power, and we're not going to name God. The Septuagint of Leviticus reads, And he that names the name of God, let him die the death. Whereas the Hebrew text can be read as, He who uses the name of God in vain. It's a big difference, right? And we're going to talk about using the God of, in God's name in vain when we get to the Ten Commandments. That's a large difference. And you can see that the rabbinical dealings with that have already changed. We can see those concurrently. So they stopped, we think we stopped, they stopped saying it about the 3rd century BCE. There are two important collections of data that one has to take into account when dealing with the name of God. This is more blah, 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 but it has a point. The Elephantine papyri and the Samaritan papyri from the Wadi Dalaya, they show that the following names of God were in use and then there's multiple ways that they were saying God. The Elephantine papyri date to the 5th century B.C., and the Wadi Delaya papyrus stem from the 4th century B.C.E. The, elephant and the Elephantine papyri contain the correspondence from the Jewish officials of the Elephantine community. Elephantine is in Egypt. So you have, an, you have your Jews that are living in Egypt still, always have been. And this is their correspondence to the officials in Samaria in Jerusalem regarding rebuilding of the recently destroyed temple. So just historically going back, they're writing, you know, we're supporting you. You need to build the temple. How's the temple going? It's kind of fun to go back and see those letters. Um, but they're using the name. So, so that's 4th century, 5th century. People are still using the name. So we can kind of see a timeline of using the name of God and whether where we're at with it. This is my hot take. After all of this, this is my hot take. doesn't have to be yours. Uh, Jehovah's out of the window for me. I don't want to say Jehovah now that I know it's just a made-up combo word. And the Mishnah doesn't really concern me. I don't have to listen to rabbinical teachings, especially ones that come after the time of Christ. They don't really have any bearing. Uh, we say Jesus, Yeshua, all the time. It's his name. For some reason, we're allowed to say the name of Jesus, but somehow we're not allowed to say the name of the Father. Uh, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, also, there's this idea that God is not an energy field, cloud, or force out in space somewhere. Uh, he's indeed most powerful, but he also reflects a desire for personhood. That's why he gave Moses this name. That's why he's at the burning bush, and he's like, call me this. Tell the people to call me this. And that's why the people continued to call him that, for over a thousand years. To dwell with us and know us, he gave us a name to use. To the best of my knowledge, looking at close to four millennia, people say Yahweh or Echah. He knows my name and shows that I can know his. If you have convictions, I respect that. Know where your traditions come from. However, don't judge brothers and sisters who do not share those same convictions. This is by no way a clear thing in the Bible for you to use or do. Does that make sense? 
So if you don't like saying the name, that's cool. But just, just know that not liking to say the name isn't a Bible thing. It's a tradition, so therefore it goes into convictions. It would be a secondary thing. Um, the Jehovah thing for me, it's just a personal it's a little pet. I don't know why it bothers me. It just bothers me. Maybe it's the Jehovah Witness thing. Maybe because they just adhere that like Jehovah is the true name. And now when I go back and look and I'm like, no, Jehovah is just a name that this Catholic dude came up with by putting two words together. And you guys aren't even Catholic. So... I don't know. The Jehovah thing bothers me. I apologize. That's my own hang-up. That's my name hang-up. But it's okay. I think it's okay if you want to respectfully say Yahweh the same way that you would respectfully say Jesus, the same way that we say Holy Spirit. They have names. They have names because they're persons who want to do personal things with us, and we can regard them that way. At the same time, don't be irreverent. Never be irreverent with it. Um... Taking the Lord God's name in vain has nothing to do with swearing. Absolutely nothing to do with swearing. However, don't swear using God's name. That's just rude. Not personal. It's, it's very irreverent. But that's not what the Ten Commandments are about. Still don't do it. Okay. Exodus 3. Now that we've talked about the name, and we will refer to him as Yahweh, and hopefully I've made a case why it's okay to refer to him as Yahweh. Um... 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, that'd be Yahweh, because it's in all capital letters, so it's okay. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. This is our first reference to the elders. The elders of Israel are going to be mentioned all the way through the Old Testament. They are a group. They are a separate group than the judges, though. I just wanted to put that there. The judges don't come until, I think Moses is sitting down with Jethro because he can't handle everything, which, by the way, Jethro is a cool name. And I think about like Jethro and then like Moses is, is doing things in, out in the desert and he's getting into trouble and he has to go back to Jethro, kind of like a Dukes of Hazard vibe, but like Arabian Peninsula style. I don't know, but I like the name Jethro too. Do not confuse this group with judges established later. Okay. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless you are unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians. Notice they said you're going to ask for them. He didn't say just go steal them and beat them up. Exodus 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, What is it in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and became a serpent. The word there is nakash. Serpent. We've already talked about that serpent word a few times. So that's a normal serpent. We're going to talk about the different serpent that happens later when Aaron does it. There you go. It's cool. And Moses ran from it. So Moses is running from the serpent. I'd like to think it's probably a cobra, because that seems like really Egyptian. 
That would also be the sign of like the kings and stuff. So in my mind, it's a cobra. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And so he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they, might, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And so he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his, land, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back in his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. These signs and these tricks, they almost seem like cool magic tricks to show people, actually have connotation within Egyptian culture. And we'll talk about these. In the Egyptian culture of this time, there are these lectern priests, which are basically like Egyptian warlocks, who actually do some of these things as part of their practice to show people. And we'll talk more about that later. Um, also, when he talked about what we call the ten plagues, he called them wonders. I like calling them signs and wonders now, because they weren't all plagues. When we say plagues, we usually just think like pestilence, like diseases, usually. And they're signs and wonders, now, the Bible refers to them as signs and wonders as we go on. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to them, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth. That's something I want him to say to me too. And teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. And he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff which, with which you shall do the signs. Okay, this is where we're ending, because it's about to get weird. We don't have time to cover the weirdness. Moses is our reluctant hero, okay? We know that he wants to save his people, right? He was willing to kill an Egyptian to save some of his people. His heart is there, doesn't seem to have the faith, doesn't seem to necessarily have the faith in himself, doesn't have the faith in Yahweh yet. Yet. But, you got to remember, at this time, he has spent his time in the desert, Think about this as his 40-year-old desert character montage where God is building his character. Um, But why Moses? Like, I'm asking why Moses at this point. Because Aaron's three years older. Aaron's already got the in with the Hebrew elders. Sounds like Aaron's a better speaker. Just leave Moses in the desert next to the bush at this point. He keeps trying to get out of it. Just go use Aaron. That would be, but Yahweh picked Moses. There's something about Moses. I think that the something about Moses has to do with his background, both with the Egyptians, but also with the fact that he is a reading and writing person. And what is Moses going to be called to do? First five books of the Bible. So he would have known multiple languages, including Akkadian. Akkadian was the common language at the time between all of those areas. 
So if you're up in Sumer and you want to tr you want to trade with Egypt, most of the people are just speaking Akkadian. So he's going to know Akkadian. He's going to know the different legal things. When you look through Leviticus, when you look through Deuteronomy, some of the things are stacked just like Assyrian documents. Some of them are stacked something, sometimes like Egyptian documents, the way that things are written and put out. I think it has to do with Moses' background. And I think Moses' heart is there. It's that whole thing like David, when David is screwing up, his heart is still there. Like that heart is there. Aaron, he's a pushover. We get to see that like 10 chapters from now. Aaron's just a giant pushover. And Moses is not a pushover. Maybe to his detriment at times, he wasn't a pushover for God here. He was reluctant. I think that's why I picked Moses. I think it's Moses' background. I think it's everything Moses has gone through. I think it's his education. I think it's his understanding of things. He's going to have an idea of the spiritual world outside of Yahweh because that's centrally practiced in Egypt. He's going to know what's going on. So, who knows? That's my opinion on Moses. Why God picked Moses and not Aaron, because Aaron would have been easier. Um, but that's it for today. Next time we get together, we'll go through the really weird story, and then we'll get to them where they're in Egypt, which is, I like it, where it gets really fun. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you today, and we thank you for using us. Lord, even when we have our Moses moments, and I just ask right now that you would be with our mouths the way that you were with their mouths. And uh, I know that I could use that on a pretty daily basis. So Lord, teach us to say your things the same way that you're teaching Aaron and Moses to say your things. Help us to listen to you. Help us to reply, here I am. And not get mouthy. And Lord, I just ask that as we go through this week, you give us opportunities to practice that. And Lord, again, we just praise you for your faithfulness. Lord, we, we love that we serve a God that wants to be among us, that wants us to call him by name, that listens to the cries of his people, that is not just off aloft doing a, something a God would do. But Lord, we, we thank you that you are you. We thank you that you are the person that you are. And so, Jesus, we love you. We thank you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Free.